We are thrilled that you are here today, even if I have not got to express that personally. Uh, I am trying to kind of keep a distance. I sound worse uh, than I feel. I was also told this morning uh, by one that I looked worse uh, than I feel. But it is always a blessing to worship God. I want you to know you're welcome. And when some of you very kind people have extended your hand to shake my hand this morning, if I reject it, it's not a rejection of you. It's simply trying to, to keep safe, keep you uh, a little protected. But open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. In verses 47 through 58, we're going to read this text at the beginning. And what we want to do is we want to come back and focus on various words in the text, uh, especially verses 53 through 58. We have three different sections, at least that's how we have divided it. The parable of the dragnet in verses 47 through 50 has no parallels in the Gospels as the, the statement in 51-52 doesn't either. But let's just read the text first. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. When it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of the household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. They came to his hometown and began teaching and he began teaching them in their synagogue. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get these wisdom, this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon? And Judas and his sisters are they not all with us where then did this man get all these things and they took offense at him and Jesus said to them a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household 
And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, this parable in verses seven, verses 47 through 50, the parable of the dragnet begins, the kingdom of heaven is lie. All of the parables in this chapter began that way, except for the parable of the sower in verse 3. But all the others began with the kingdom of heaven is like. And the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. It's the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. And this word just refers to a net that was taken and it was just spread out in the sea. And ultimately it's going to draw up everything that gets called in it. Now that kind of illustration is used in Habakkuk 1 verses 15 through 17 to talk about the Babylonians. How they gathered up all kinds of captives in a net and captured them. This talks about the kingdom of heaven though being like a dragnet that gathers in all kinds of fish. And when it's filled, they pull it to shore. They pull this net to shore and they discard the bad fish. Maybe that means they're unclean fish according to Leviticus 11. A fish had to have um, fins and scales in order to be regarded as clean. Maybe that's why they threw them away. Maybe it was just uh, inedible for other reasons. But they throw away the bad and they preserve the good and store them in jars. And the Bible says this is how it will be at the end of the age. Now, you notice, you notice in this particular parable that there are all kinds of connections with what we talked about a few weeks ago, the parable of the tares or the parable of the weeds. Both of these parables in verse 40 and in verse 49 deal with the end of the age. Both of them deal with the fact that at the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth angels. Verse 41. In verse 49, the angels will come forth. And the angels are going to separate the wicked from the righteous. The wicked from the righteous. Now let's stop here just a moment. When I was preaching through the parable of the tares and the parable of the weeds, I said in that case that I think the kingdom describes the world and uh, it's just God separating all men at final judgment. Some of you questioned that and I sought to explain it again in another service and you still questioned it, some of you did. And I'm starting to reconsider that. I, in light of this parable, with them being so closely connected, it's obviously that here even the kingdom message gathers some people good and some bad. And they may have to be separated at the end of time. 
They're all pulled ashore. But they're separating the good from the bad. And the bad are thrown into the furnace of fire. Jesus will not let us forget that there is a judgment for those who reject him. And it is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I want to tell you something that's in that last parable that's not in this parable. In verse 43, not only did the parable of the tares or the parable of the weeds discuss all of these points, but it also highlighted the destiny of the righteous. In verse 43, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This parable has no parallel to that. The point is, this one emphasizes just the judgment of the wicked, not the reception of the righteous into God's presence. A couple of weeks ago, when I was last with you, we talked about verses 44 through 46. And we talked about one who finds a treasure hidden in a field. He finds this precious treasure hidden in the field. And when he finds it, he hides it again. And he sells everything he can in order to obtain that field. And it's like a pearl seeking precious gems. And he finds one pearl of great value. And he sells everything. Because he wants to obtain that one pearl. That showed us how we should respond to God's message. Or God's kingdom. But Jesus is very conscious in this parable to continue to emphasize that there are consequences for how we respond to that message. And he would beg us and he would use those of us who preach and teach to beg you to make the right decision, to make the right choice, to surrender your lives to him. In verses 51 and 52, Jesus said, have you understood all these things? And they said, yes. I find that answer a little remarkable. A couple of times earlier in the chapter, they've asked for explanations. And now they're confident that they've understood everything. We're going to find, even if they did at this moment, in chapter 15, he's going to rebuke them for their lack of understanding. And when he tells them about the cross in 7, 16 and 17, they will not understand. They will not understand. But right now they say, yes, we understand. And Jesus said, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. 
This may refer to these scribes who had spent their time in examining, studying, and seeing the things in the Old Testament Scriptures. And now, as Jesus comes, they see not only these things in their original life, but all the ways in which they pointed to and find their fulfillment in Him. Maybe that is the idea. But I want to tell you this. If we just keep reading the text, we keep teaching the Bible, we keep looking at Scripture, and we saturate ourselves with that, we're never going to run out of good things to teach our children, to teach our grandchildren, to talk to our neighbors about. We're never going to run out of good things. I know one preacher would tell of this uh, this is a preacher that passed away uh, before my time but, but he said he preached in the same church uh, 43, 44 years and sometimes occasionally someone would come out the back and say um, you know uh, Brother Thompson we, we, we love you but it, it may be time that we go hear uh, some, we need to hear somebody else and he said, well, he says, we're going to miss you, but you tell us wherever you go worship. Because <laughs> I thought that was a good story. Maybe you didn't. <laughs> but he was asked this. This is what I was getting to. How do you preach at the same place 40-something years? And he said, I read the Bible. I read the Bible. And if I keep reading the Bible, I've always got something new to present. May we always imitate that example. I don't know if you called it but Jesus' rejection at Nazareth, let me go back and give these passages just a second, has parallels in Mark 6 and Luke 4. We may incorporate Luke 4 in just a moment. It is interesting that Luke places this at a much different place in his gospel than Matthew and Mark does. I don't think it's any question that he disagreed with their chronology. It is simply a question of why he moves it there. Why does he place it there? But let's look at this particular text. In this passage, when Jesus had finished these parables, the Gospel of Matthew emphasizes Jesus' oral teaching. It emphasizes, it has nine chapters devoted to his teaching. And at the end of every one of those major addresses, there is some statement like this. For example, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. As he talks about discipleship in Matthew 10, in Matthew 11, 1, when Jesus had finished 
giving instructions to his disciples. And now you see the same thing in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And they came to his hometown. His hometown's not mentioned here, but it would be Nazareth. Jesus had grown, had grown up going to this synagogue. And he is teaching in their synagogue. Luke 4 gives us a more detailed account of that. He stood up to read. And by the way, I, I had a teacher state this once. And he did not document it, and I have not seen it documented. But I think it's a powerful thing. What happens actually in Luke 4 is Jesus takes the scroll and reads from the scroll. He reads from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. But the teacher made his point. He said, in the Jewish synagogue, they would let any male member preach. But they had the person who was most educated in Scripture to read the Scripture. I want you to think about that. We sometimes do the opposite. But that was their emphasis. But Jesus took this scroll. And he read from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. And he closed the eyes of the scroll with the eyes of everyone on him. He handed the scroll to the attendant and said, This day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the crowd is amazed at him in Luke 4, in verse 22. But, but look at this statement in verse 54, Matthew 13, verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? How does he speak so eloquently? And how does he speak of himself as fulfilling these scriptures? Where did this man get these, this wisdom and these miraculous powers. Now, verse 56, that same question is basically going to be asked again. They said, where did this man get all these things? It, it just doesn't match with what they know about Jesus. They ask in verse 55, is this not the carpenter's son? In Luke 4, verse 22, they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Is this not the carpenter's son? His mother's called Mary. His brothers are James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas. I don't mean to insult you if you've already recognized this. But it just dawned on me this past week that all the names of Jesus' brothers are tied to patriarchs in the book of Genesis. The name James in the New Testament is the name Jacob. It's the name Jacob. And why we translate it as James always, I I'm not exactly sure. But Jacob, Joseph, 
Sion, and Judah. What does that tell you about Joe, Jesus' family? I think it shows you their love for Israel's history and their attention to the promises of God. But that's a passing point. The main point I'm trying to stress at this time is they call attention to his family in stunned disbelief at the things he's saying. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, by the way only mentioned here and in the parallel in Mark, are not his sisters, are they not with us? And again, they ask, where did he get these things? How does he say such amazing things? And they took offense at him. In verse 57, they stumbled over him. Just like there are stumbling blocks in the kingdom in chapter 13 and verse 41. In this passage, they stumble over his words. And Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own. In other words, a prophet does receive honor, but not in his hometown, not in his family. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, we could... Let's say some things about the text and incorporate this with our points. Many people reject Jesus. They reject Jesus because they think they know more about him than they actually do. Now I want you to think about this situation. They asked the question. They knew all about Jesus. You don't need to tell us about Jesus. He grew up here. I remember him going to synagogue when he was younger. Oh, I remember all his brothers and sisters. We know all about Jesus. And they ask a question in verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? What's the answer to that question? (laughs) Or as they ask it in Luke, is this Joseph's son? Before Joseph and Mary were married, he hears that she's with child. Being a righteous man, he doesn't want to disgrace her and seeks to divorce her quietly and privately. But an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child has been conceived of the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son and you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, we are told, to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son 
And he shall be called Emmanuel, for he is God with us. Is this the carpenter's son? Is this Joseph's son? Their familiarity with Jesus or them thinking that they are familiar with Jesus leads them to reject him. Listen to this statement by J.W. McGarvey. Their extreme familiarity with his humanity made them blind to the evidences of his divinity. While their unwillingness to admit his divinity made them incapable of answering their own questions. It made them incapable of answering their own questions. Where did this man get these wisdom? Get this wisdom and these miraculous powers. Whence did this man get all these things? Their questions are, they cannot answer because they really don't know who Jesus is. They think they know. But they don't know. And McGarvey went on to say, the miracles of Jesus and the words of Jesus provide an unsolved mystery for all those who deny that he is the Son of God. Where did this man get these wisdom? It wasn't simply from Joseph and Mary. It wasn't simply from his brothers and sisters. Where did this man get these things? You see, people reject him. Because they think they know more about it than they actually do. Look at John, John 6. John 6. In John 6, in verse 41. Jesus, by the way, in this setting is teaching also in the synagogue. He's teaching in the synagogue at Capernaum. In John 6 and verse 59. But in John 6 verse 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. Because he said I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And they were saying is not this Jesus the son of Joseph. Whose father and mother we know. How does he now say I have come down out of heaven. We know his mother. We know his father. I am come down out of heaven. Yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And their ignorance of who he really is leads them to reject him. Can I say something here? And I want you to think about it. Many of, many of us, and I include myself here, have been born with a silver spoon in our mouths spiritually. Not necessarily physically, but spiritually. We have grown up being carried to services all our lives. I, I, I don't remember 
When I first heard of Jesus and that He died for my sins and rose again, because as far as I can remember, I've always known that. I never remember hearing that for the first time. Now, a lot of you all are in the same circumstance. And sometimes our familiarity can bring contempt. And we can think because we know all about him, which we don't begin to scratch the surface. But we know all about him. He's not the answer to my problems. He's not the answer to my difficulties. Do you really know him? The people at Nazareth thought they knew him. And they rejected him because of his family circumstance. But they don't even understand that properly. Do you understand who Jesus is? And the fact that we have been born with a silver spoon in our mouth spiritually. Do not let that familiarity breed contempt but let it lead you to stand in wonder more and more at the beauty of God, at the glory of His holiness, of the depth of His love. He is the answer. A prophet is not without honor except in his own home. And among his own family. We have been told in Matthew 12 verses 26 through 50 how Jesus' family came. And Jesus said, who are my mothers and brothers? That those who do the will of God are my brothers and mothers and sisters. His family was, at least his brothers and sisters, not completely on board with his ministry at this point. Jesus says a prophet receives honor, but not in his hometown and not in his household. And again, another example of how familiarity breeds contempt. But I mentioned Luke 4 here. Because in Luke 4, in his account of this, Remember, Jesus makes this statement in verse 24. A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. And he uses two illustrations. He uses the illustration of Elijah and then one of Elisha. He said there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah the prophet. But Elijah was not sent to any of these, but he was sent to a widow of Zarephath. And there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha. But Elisha wasn't sent to them, but he was sent to Naaman the leper. Now they got so mad when he said that, that they intended to throw him over a cliff and kill him. Why did they get so mad when he used those illustrations? Because in those illustrations of Elijah and Elisha, not only was the prophet not accepted in his homeland, but he was being listened to by those that we would least expect to listen. A widow in Zarephath. Zarephath was near the area that Jezebel was from. 
And Elisha doesn't heal the lepers of Israel, but he heals Naaman, an Aramean soldier who had an Israelite slave. Well, God's spokesmen are rejected by sometimes those who are too close to see them. It is amazing how some that we would least expect to believe, do believe. I didn't handle the PowerPoint well, and the heading here should be point three. But in this point three, I incorporate Mark 6, and I ask you to turn with me there. Mark 6. In Mark 6, in verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hand? Is not this the carpenter? Notice Jesus is here called the carpenter. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own home, his, his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, all of that's basically verse for verse, things that we've had before. But look at verse 6. And word for word, he wondered at their unbelief. Now, this particular word, wondered, is translated in some of your versions, amazed and marveled at their unbelief. Some of your translations have. This Greek word is often used to describe the response to Jesus' miracles. It's used to describe the response to his miracles when he quieted the winds and waves in Matthew 8 and verse 27. The disciples were amazed. They were astonished. They marveled. You see the same when he opened the eyes of the blind and cast out demons in 9.33. All of these passages describe a response to the mighty act of Jesus, to a miracle of Jesus. They saw his miracles and they were astonished and they were amazed. Sometimes it's the disciples' reaction. Sometimes it is the crowd's reaction. It is also the response to his teaching. As the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus and they said, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus said, show me a denarius. And they gave him one. And he said, render to Caesar. So whose picture is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. And to God, the things that belong to God. And the Bible tells us they were amazed. They marveled at his teaching. It, respond, it shows Jesus 
It shows the crowd's response to Jesus' miracles. It shows the crowd's response to Jesus' teaching. It even shows the response of Pilate to Jesus' silence when he asks him questions and Jesus doesn't answer. He's astonished. He's amazed. He marvels. But here... Here, it's used of Jesus. That Jesus is astonished and marveled and amazed at their unbelief. I'm not questioning the omniscience of God. Or the foreknowledge of God. It's not my point. But isn't that word remarkable? Jesus is also amazed or astonished at belief in strange places. Some Jewish elders came to Jesus one time and they said, There's a centurion whose servant is very sick. And come and heal him, for he is worthy, they said, for you to do this deed, because he loves our nation, and he has built our synagogue. As Jesus gets closer to the Gentiles' house, the man sends out other messengers who say, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed because I'm a man under authority and I say to this one, do this and he does it and do that and he does it. And I know you can just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus marveled at his faith. Jesus marveled at faith in places that you wouldn't expect it and he marveled at unbelief. Let me show you a picture here. On this row um, is one family. When we were blessed to live in the Czech Republic in 1995, um, we had a Bible class, public Bible class with Marek. Marek said, that he just comes to learn English. He wasn't interested in studying the Bible. He told us later that was never true, but I didn't want you to bother me. <laughs> One night, and this is typical of the Czech people, um, they could be as blank faced as any group of people and you never could detect interest I took him at his word he just wanted to learn English but one night he started questioning us about all kinds of things that we were saying and we said he's not just here to learn English or if he was he's been changed he wanted to know the Bible in the meantime he was going back home and teaching his girlfriend at the time Pavla and Shortly before we left, we were blessed to get to baptize 
Marek and Pava. But they did not live in the area where we were worshiping. They lived in an area um, a couple of hours away, a small town. This is their whole church. This is their assembly on Sunday morning. And this is at a high point. Okay. Because sometimes this family is the only one that's there. But we were worried that we were leaving him. But the Lord has taken good care of him. And he has raised up all three of his kids, Jacob and Vite and Shimon, or it's, we would say Simon in our language. And they are all Christians and serving the Lord faithfully. The oldest two boys have made some trips to America. Some of you may have met them. I know that they came down and visited Florida College a couple of times when I was teaching. But one time their father asked me this. I think this was the last time I was in the Czech Republic about five to six years ago. He said that his boys had come back. Well, first of all, let me say this other thing. These are the only young Christians they know. They've gone to school, there haven't been other young Christians. To associate with, they haven't had other young Christians. But the boys came back, the older boys came back, and they went to some of the places that the best and brightest go. They went to a couple of Bible camps, not just camps, but Bible camps. But the boys came back and told their father, some of these young people in America are just not committed to the Lord. Even that are going to these camps. From their standpoint of always being the only Christians around, and always longing for that kind of companionship and thinking that would be heaven. He asked me this. How can that be? How can that be? In light of all the opportunities that they have. In all the blessings they have. How could they not all be on fire for the Lord? I had no answer. I still had no answer. And amazingly, even Jesus marveled at such things. May Jesus marvel at our faith like the centurion and not our unbelief. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God.
you are so awesome. From even before I can remember, oh God, I have had opportunities to go to services, to worship you in absolute freedom, to speak of you openly, and to hear about your mighty deeds. May our familiarity with you never breed contempt. May it only increase our wonder and awe at you every single day. Thank you, God. Who are we that we can worship so openly, so freely as we do? Thank you, God, for this. And thank you, God, for revealing yourself through your Son. Thank you for giving him to die for us, for our sins, and to be raised from the dead. Oh, Lord, forgive us for times that you may marvel and wonder at our stubbornness, at our refusal to submit to you. May we always be people like the centurion who exercised complete faith in you and your mercy. Hold us in your hand. Bring us closer to you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Again, again, my friend, I appreciate so much you being here. In light of me feeling bad, I'm not going to go to the back today. I may not get opportunity to speak to you, but we are thrilled that you're here. We thank you for your presence. If you are here for the first time, we hope you come back all the time to worship with us. You may have already really heard about Jesus. You may have already heard a lot about him. But do you really know him? Do you really know this one who is the light of the world, who is the resurrection and life? Maybe you need to taste and see that God is good for the first time. If you believe that Jesus, if you believe you have sinned and you have fallen short of his glory, and you know that he loves you and died for your sin, and you see your need of repenting, and be baptized in him. We want to help you as we stand and as we sing.